Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. This is a practice that we do daily in order to train the mind and eliminate craving or greed, the tendency of the mind to hold on. This craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. We need to eliminate this from the mind because it's the primary cause of why the mind is discontent the longing with a strong eagerness in the mind the mind's tendency to hold on and not be comfortable with things that are constantly changing the mind is constantly craving permanence and wanting to hold on and because of this we cause ourselves discontent feelings like sadness anger frustration irritation annoyance guilt shame fears boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, all of these discontent feelings that are being produced by the mind because of this craving, this desire, this attachment, the tendency for the mind to hold on. And we can actually eliminate this because we are the ones who are causing the discontent mind. We can actually eliminate all of these discontent feelings 100% where the mind will be permanently peaceful permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, and permanently with joy. This is the enlightened mind. But in order to do that, we need to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha to include meditation. So here in this Facebook group, on this YouTube channel, and on this podcast, we dedicate every Sunday to discussing the teachings of Gautama Buddha and diving into this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And on Wednesdays, we spend time discussing and practicing meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and we also do chanting as well in order to train the mind to kind of ease it into meditation. We do this on Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m., Thai time. So wherever you are and whatever time zone you're in, you can tune in to this same Facebook page, this same YouTube channel, and the same podcast. The podcast, of course, is available all the time. And all the other ways that we share the teachings are available after the live presentation or the live online sessions. So today we're going to actually do breathing mindfulness meditation. But before we do that, What I would like to do is give an opportunity for anybody who's in our virtual classroom or watching on Facebook or YouTube 
to give you guys a chance to ask any questions that might be arising from your meditation practice, from learning with the resources provided, the book, the podcast, the YouTube channel, anything that you're thinking about or has come to mind or you're curious about the teachings or how to implement the teachings, really just opening the floor to any and all questions to be able to help you further your practice and progress on this path to enlightenment. So Max, do we have any questions? I have some questions I wouldn't mind asking. Uh, one of which, David, is about the practice of gratitude because practicing gratitude is something that's often encouraged in say like self-help groups and often in modern psychology but i'd be interested to know what role gratitude can play in practice of buddha's teachings and if the buddha said anything about practicing gratitude yeah i think that you know what the buddha taught is definitely you know having gratitude and appreciation for parents and things like this and for teachers and people like this but generally, we know that gratitude and appreciation is, is an important part of this path. If we weren't feeling gratitude or appreciation for our parents, for our siblings, for our friends, for even strangers, our coworkers, our teachers, if we didn't have gratitude and appreciation for all of these people, then it would be pretty difficult to practice things like loving kindness, which is active goodwill for all beings, or compassion, which is concern for others' misfortune. So I haven't seen myself a whole lot of places where Gautama Buddha talked about gratitude, but there are some isolated places that I've seen it. But we definitely know it's part of the path, you know, thanking people, being appreciative. You know, one of the things that Gautama Buddha did during his lifetime is he basically lived on the food and generosity of all the people who were learning with him the lay people, the ordained folks. He basically accepted food and clothing, shelter, medical care, water, things like this from all the people that were around him. And an enlightened being isn't gonna walk around with ego and think, ah, oh, look at all these people giving me all this free stuff. I'm a big shot, look at me. No, an enlightened being is gonna be very appreciative and have gratitude for any offerings or donations or clothing or medical care, shelter, and just having enormous amounts of gratitude, even for people just learning the teachings, because a Buddha is going to know that their teachings will lead people to enlightenment, and it's their goal to share the teachings with as many people as possible during their lifetime, so that there can be a large community of enlightened beings upon a Buddha's death so that once a Buddha dies, there's lots of people to carry the teachings forward. So the lay people and anyone who's making offerings to enlightened people are helping them to sustain their life and progress the teachings in the world. I know that gratitude and appreciation is absolutely an important part of this path. We should have that for all beings, for everybody. Yes, I think gratitude works because it calibrates our perception of how things really are. It helps us to see things more as they are. It's not about trying to see things as better than they are. It's really about seeing them as they are and realizing there is a case for gratitude. So mm -hmm. I, I, that's kind of how I see it, is that it helps us see things more clearly in the way mm -hmm. that the teachings do more generally. It helps us let go of craving. 
One of the things that I noticed among Thai people is they're very appreciative of anybody who chooses to just take some time to share something with them that will benefit their life. You know, when I've been in roles as a boss and I had lots of Thai employees or Thai friends or acquaintances, just sometimes in casual conversation, if they're speaking and I just mention something that I feel like would help their life, there's always a thank you. There's always an appreciation. It's never, who do you think you are to tell me what you think? Even if they disagree, there's always a thank you. And noticing this with Thai people versus where in our culture, I think that if you kind of openly share with a friend or a family, sometimes the ego chimes in and feels like, well, who are you to tell me you know, what I should and shouldn't be doing? The ties are just always open and appreciative of that. So one of the things that I was doing early in practice, and it really helped me to eliminate ego, is whenever somebody would share something with me, whether it was a stranger or a customer, at that time I was in business, whether it was a friend or a family or my wife or even my son, my seven-year-old son, he's seven and a half years old now. Whenever somebody shares something, even if I disagree with it, even if I know that I've tried you know, that particular thing in life and it didn't work out for me, I would just say thank you. you know, I appreciate you taking the time to share with me. You know, It's not thanking them for advice because sometimes I think in our culture, we think by thanking somebody for advice, it's putting them above us and somehow their ego is going to get bolstered because of it. But that's thinking about the other person. What we should be thinking about is our own practice, that by saying thank you and showing appreciation, it eliminates our ego. So even if somebody shares something like in a business meeting or something like that, just saying, oh, thank you, Barbara, for sharing that. That was very kind of you to take your time to offer that suggestion. Even if you have no plan to take that suggestion whatsoever, and even if you think it's perhaps the most horrible idea you've ever heard, but just thanking her or him for the suggestion, what it shows is that you do have gratitude, you do have appreciation, and then Barbara is willing to give you suggestions in the future. Whereas if she gives you a suggestion and you're like, that's the most horrible suggestion I've ever heard, how dare you share something like that? Well, you can bet your, you know, whatever that she's never going to speak up again and offer you something because you are hostile towards her. And what I've noticed is there were employees in my company that would give me suggestion after suggestion after suggestion after suggestion. And I might have said thank you and appreciation to, you know, 99 different suggestions And it was that 100 suggestion that was like the best idea I'd ever heard. And it really changed our business and allowed us to be so much more successful than we ever were. But had I not said thank you and showed appreciation for those 99 suggestions, I would have never got to the 100 one. So by showing appreciation and gratitude, it allows you to lower your ego. It shows other people that you're open and you're willing to talk and listen, it shows them that you're appreciative and they're gonna be really willing to help you in your life. Why create a wall that shuts down advice? If you're practicing the teachings really well and you're looking for the truth, even if somebody gives you a suggestion and it's not 100% accurate or something that you feel would be beneficial, 
you should be able to take that information and look at it and determine whether it would be beneficial or not, or practice it, so to speak, try it out and see if it works. And you should be able to discard it if it doesn't work and it's not helpful. But if we shut it down as soon as the advice comes and kind of get angry with our own ego because somebody shared advice with us, you're shutting down an avenue of potential advice that can be helpful in life and it's not creating good wholesome relationships with people around you. You know, everybody loves polite and kind and appreciative and people who have gratitude. People love being around people like that. So even if the ideas are no good or you feel that they're no good, just saying thank you and appreciation opens the relationship and keeps it wholesome. So this is one of the reasons why I feel like I had a really easy time of finding employees to work with me is because I was always open to my employees and my customers. I felt like as a business person, my role was to listen to the employees about the type of place they would like to work and create that and listen to the customers about the type of business that they would like to participate in and, and patronize. And essentially, I'm bringing these two groups of people together by making decisions on both sides and by staying open and appreciative and thanking both sides anytime they give me advice. I might not take their advice every single time, but they felt at least my boss listened to me or at least the business owner listened to me and he heard me out. He may not have took my advice, but he listened. And then he showed appreciation, appreciation and, and gratitude you. for sharing that opinion and that insight. And I tell you that people used to give me all kinds of compliments as a boss and as a business owner. But what I would tell people privately is my only thing as a business owner is to listen to people and make decisions. Because 99.9% .9 of all the things that got implemented in my businesses that ultimately became successful were either ideas of the employees or ideas of the customers. And my only job was listening and showing appreciation and gratitude and then implementing the decisions that I felt would be best for the business. And because of that, it created a lot of good gamma, right? A lot of good results, a lot of good uh, consequences. And that's why I became so successful as a business owner uh, by showing appreciation and gratitude and by listening to others. Yeah, and, and also there's the element of intent in that we don't really control the outcomes. If the idea is a bad one, we often don't know until it's actually produced results. Mm -hmm. What we do know is whether we went in there with a wholesome intent. Mm -hmm. And the last thing we want to do is we discourage others and ourselves from making decisions based on unwholesome intent. The results will take care of themselves, right? But yeah. if, if, if they're made with good intent, then it's worth saying thank you. Even if you think uh, it's probably not going to work, if the intention was wholesome, then that's, in a sense, still good advice. You know, we can take that advice, right, that we might just think initially, we're like, hey, that wouldn't be very helpful. But you hear the advice and you think, hey, that wouldn't be very helpful. But instead of saying that to the person who just took five minutes of their day or even one minute of their day to explain this to you because they thought it would be beneficial, instead of saying that's not going to be helpful, why would you tell me that? I would say things like, thank you so much for sharing that. I've never heard this idea before. I'm going to think about it 
and see what I might do at that point. I can't make a decision right now, but I would like to think about this. And I really appreciate that you've taken this minute of your life to actually share something with me. You know, so depending on what the idea was or how long they took, I would really confirm with them that I heard them, that I was going to think about it. I was going to consider it. I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with me. And because of that, people just constantly used to give me ideas all the time. And I loved it because I always had employees that were willing to work with me and give me ideas and help things. And I always had lots of customers that were giving me ideas and helping the business as well. Because then when people contribute ideas, they feel like they have a stake in it, right? It's not, it wasn't David's business. It was this place that we all came to, that we all enjoyed, that we all participated in, that everybody had a little hand in. They might've given me 10 ideas and they only saw one or two of their ideas get implemented. But when that happened, now they feel like kind of part of this thing that got created because they contributed to creating it. So they had more invested in the business because their ideas were going into creating it. How about if someone responds with harsh criticism towards us? Should we still thank them? You can, but uh, usually if someone's really harsh, I would just smile. You know, in certain situations, depending how bad it was, I might just walk away. I had one time a, a landlord came into our business. It was a new landlord. I had negotiated a lease with a previous landlord and the new landlord came into the business and they had just took out this huge mortgage on this property and they were trying to kick us out because we had a really good rate on rent, but we had like six more years left. They couldn't kick us out. So the landlord came in and started cussing at me and yelling at me, even threatened to kill me in front of employees and customers. And we had it on videotape, we had it, I mean, he was just up in my face and yelling and screaming. And I just stood there and I just looked him in the eyes because I wasn't scared, but his mind was just going and going. I mean, he was yelling at the top of his lungs and I hadn't done anything, I, I was just standing there. And then after he was done, I just walked away and went into the office and sat down and employees and customers came up to me afterwards and like, oh my goodness, like, how did you do that? That guy was like up in your face and yelling and screaming and threatening to kill you. I wouldn't have been able to restrain myself. What are you going to do now? Are you going to call the police? And I was like, no, like, why? Like, it's over. It's in the past. So you, you have people that, you know, can be varying degrees. You know, that was probably one of the most extreme situations that I've ever had. But reacting negatively or reacting with sarcasm, which a thank you could be considered sarcasm, reacting that way is only going to produce more unwholesome results. So the best thing you can do when someone's being harsh and critical is just remain calm, smile. If you need to walk away, just walk away. I wanted to let him get everything out. After that, I never saw him again. Uh, he never came back to the business. Uh, he sent his partner in anytime because his partner was very calm and very collected. But I never saw him again after that. He basically probably discovered in that situation, I can't shake this guy. He wasn't scared of me. He just stood right there and smiled. So he probably felt like never come back. And he might even felt like he lost face a bit as well because everybody saw how irate he was. 
But if I would have gotten irate or I would have got bent out of shape or I would have had fear and all of these things, it would have produced a lot of unwholesome results. So that's why I just stood there, smiled, and when it was over, just walked away, went into my office. I didn't, wasn't expecting it, but a lot of people really looked at me in awe when that happened. Um, I wasn't thinking about that aspect of it, but people came up afterwards and talked about it. Yeah, so I, I don't know that I would say thank you if somebody was being critical or harsh. I would probably just smile. So not in that situation. Yeah, I'd probably because it kind of would come off like sarcasm, I think, and that would just incite them more. I think that's the danger is that if you're thanking someone whose intention was just clearly unequivocally not to help you, then it can only really appear as you know, sarcasm uh, or as though you're not speaking with loving kindness. Even if you are, even if you're interested in encouraging wholesome behavior in another person, it's just not going to seem that way when the intent is clearly uh, unwholesome. Something you said there, which was just, it's in the past, like, it's, it's gone. There's, there's, there's no use in ruminating anymore because it's not going to do, solve, achieve anything. Might as well just put it out of your mind, cut it off. One question I have though is, is even if we know that and something can keep coming back, and this is, this is an interesting one because I can understand why the mind might become discontent under certain conditions. So, okay, I'm being threatened here. I'm feeling discontent because I have an attachment to uh, perhaps there's ego, perhaps there's a uh, sense of physical danger. But once the conditions have passed, what are the conditions that cause it to come back in the mind? Surely if those conditions have gone, mm -hmm. it shouldn't enter the mind again if it's not useful. So where does it come from? It's craving, right? It's the mind holding on and craving permanence. So this is an untrained mind that even in a situation where it's over, the mind can just stew and stew and stew and, and toss and turn and kick it around. And, oh my God, this guy's going to attack me. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? It's the craving. It's the greed. It's the holding on. It's the craving permanence. This is why we train our mind to let go. So like, for example, when that guy walked out, it's like, okay, it's done. It's over. Goodbye. Like, just move on. What's the next thing? So if you train the mind really well, you can get to a point where you can just let go of things and the mind's not holding on. You just live in the present moment, deal with what's in the present moment, make good, wholesome decisions off of these teachings, and then just move from thing to thing to thing. You know, we're all taught in Western culture to multitask, which isn't possible because the mind's only doing one thing at a time. It's just doing multiple things back to back to back in really rapid succession. So it thinks it's doing multiple things. So we would be convinced in Western culture that by doing just one thing at a time, that somehow we're going to be less productive. But in fact, you're actually more productive because by doing one thing at a time, your mind is more focused, more concentrated. You have more clarity of mind. You're making good, wholesome decisions every single moment. So all of those things are producing better results. Whereas if you're trying to do three, six things at a time, like, for example, talk on the phone to a friend, watch TV and eat a sandwich. You're not really talking to your friend and taking in the conversation that needs to be discussed. You're not really taking in the entertainment. You're not really taking in the food. All those things are just happening so quick back to back. You're not really benefiting from all of them. And then when it's all done, 
your friend is probably angry because you didn't really give them their time and attention. And now you've got to spend time to take care of that and resolve that and reassure them that you do care about them. And, you know, sorry, you were just busy with other things. So by actually doing just one thing at a time, you actually create better decisions, which create better results. And therefore, you're more productive. Sure. I, I think I heard you say recently in the Facebook group that one good practice is to, to question each moment. Like, what am I doing in this moment that is leading me towards awakening? Uh, is what I'm doing right now leading me towards enlightenment or away from it? That's a good way to think of it. What are some examples of how we could apply that in everyday life, just during, say, you know, going to the shops or brushing our teeth or anything? This is the present moment, right? This is like allowing the mind to only reside in the present moment. Because if I'm talking to you now and my mind is thinking about all the things I'm going to do after class and tomorrow and the next day and the next day, or if my mind's in the past and thinking about all the classes we had in the past or all the things I did today or the other stuff, I can't deliver a really good conversation and have a really good understanding with you in this present moment because the mind is always somewhere else. So that's why the mind needs to be trained through meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation, to come into the present moment and only ever reside in the present moment. And it's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel weird as the mind starts transitioning into this way of thinking because we're taught to have so many plans in the future and to be thinking about the future so much. And we're even taught to drum up the past and kind of relive a lot of the past moments in our life. So when you start letting go of these things, it can almost feel like you're kind of losing grip of reality a little bit. And this is where I describe kind of attaining non-self as it almost feels like you're walking off of a cliff and nothing's there to catch you because we have this false sense of security that by thinking about the future and planning out the future, that there's somehow security in that. And we think that that's what's going to lead to a better life or thinking about the past as well. So we plan out the future and we think this is somehow security and it makes us feel more secure. However, when we plan out the future, we know all that's going to change because of impermanence. So if the mind gets locked on to doing certain things in the future and then everything starts to change, the mind's going to be discontent. So by living in the present moment and having goals, having objectives, kind of knowing where you're headed generally in life, but kind of figuring it out moment by moment, day by day, then you can actually make better decisions because you're not hooked and holding on to any particular thing in the future. So as new opportunities and various things come up on a moment by moment basis, you can ebb and flow with that and kind of put that into place readily. Whereas if you have the next three months planned out and some new thing comes up, the mind's locked, the life is locked. There's too many changes that have to take place in order to implement this really new, wonderful thing that just kind of landed in your lap. So keeping the mind in the present moment and only focusing on the present moment. The Buddha said, when you're walking, know that you're walking. When you're eating, know that you're eating. When you're talking, know that you're talking. 
And then he went further. He said, when you're urinating, know that you're urinating. When you're defecating, know that you're defecating. This is the joke that I was like, how did the Buddha know people were going to be sitting on the toilet with smartphones 2,500 years after his death, defecating and being on their smartphone? Well, if you've ever done that, you know, it's kind of challenging to get the work done that you need to get done when you're sitting on the toilet and you're on the phone. You usually end up being there a whole lot longer than if you just did your business and then got up and left. Or the other thing that happens is people are on the on the phone and they drop it in the toilet, right? <laughs> and they, they waste their they waste their phone, they ruin their phone. This is all karma. This is all unwholesome results because of unwholesome decisions. <laughs> so if people just follow this practice of living in the moment, the present moment and making really good decisions each individual moment. If you're in an argument with somebody, and even if you started the argument or even if somebody else starts the argument and you notice, oh my goodness, I'm arguing, back to what you were saying, is this leading me towards enlightenment or not? Is arguing with this person going to help improve the condition of the mind and let go or by me sitting here arguing and staying hooked on my thoughts and trying to convince this other person that I'm right, how is that benefiting me, right? Rather than holding on so tightly and trying to convince this other person, just let it go. If you mention something or you suggest something and they come back with some really strong hostile comment, then you know, okay, this person's not open to understanding more, just let it go. Whereas if you say, oh, you know, I suggest you try this, Barbara. And she's like, oh, that's actually an interesting idea. I haven't thought of that. Then you know she's open and we can continue to talk. And there's a good relationship here where if hostility comes back to you, then you know, like, I'm not even going to try here. And if you keep trying to push on top of them, that's just craving, wanting and craving to convince this person of your idea. And it probably involves the ego a bit too, where you're trying to prove to them that you're right and they're wrong. But oftentimes the ideas and opinions and views that we come up with, they're just our perception. It's not really true reality. And because impermanence, my opinion and your opinion is different, and it's always going to be different on most topics. There's no way that 100% of the people are going to agree with you 100% of the time. So why even try to convince people to agree with you if they're not open to it to begin with? Sitting in an argument is going to do nothing but make you frustrated and make them frustrated. So train the mind to let go. I observe when I share something with somebody, if there's hostility or aggression, there's just no reason to keep going because it's only going to lead to discontentedness. And if they're open and they're interested and inviting and willing to talk, then okay, we can have a conversation. Just last week, I met a man who is here in Thailand and he's teaching Christian teachings to hill tribe people out in the mountains. And him and I had a beautiful talk about Christianity and Buddhism and me asking him about how he thinks about things and what his thoughts are and him asking me questions and neither one of us were trying to convince each other of anything. We were just inquisitive about how each other thought about things. And it was a wonderful conversation. Um, and, and that's how 
a conversation can go if neither side is trying to convince each other of something and prove that I'm right and you're wrong, but just interested to understand each other. And you can have really good, wholesome conversations that way. And that's how you can look at, is this leading me towards enlightenment? Well, an enlightened being is going to be able to have a conversation with anybody. And any situation, any conversation, their mind's not going to get hostile. Their mind's not going to get discontent. They're not going to have aggression or frustration or irritation. Their mind's going to be able to converse with anybody. And they're going to take their time to share and to understand in the conversation. They're not, it's not going to be a one-sided conversation. Great. Thanks, David. Directing my attention now to the chat window. We have a question from Helen Stacy. Helen asks, can I practice other forms of Buddhism or should I just stick with David's teaching? I'm only asking because I'm so new to all of this. So for instance, is the Dalai Lama's teaching the same as what I'm learning? I just don't want to get confused and go off the rails. So very laudable intention there. Um, very happy with what I've achieved already. Thanks to David. Thank you. Okay. So let's answer that question by first kind of giving a background for people who are kind of coming into Buddhism or maybe haven't heard this teaching before. There's three main traditions of Buddhist teachings, and then there's a lot of kind of offshoots of those. The first one is Theravada Buddhism. Theravada Buddhism translates to teachings of the elders. These are considered to be the teachings that are closest to those that were taught by Gautama Buddha during his lifetime. They source the teachings from the Pali Canon or the Pali text. This dates back to about 1,200 years ago. Even though the Buddha died 2,500 years ago, the text that is used dates back to about 1,200 years ago, and it's written in the Pali language. So that's kind of the source of the teachings and considered the largest, most complete collection of teachings that we have from Gautama Buddha. However, it's not everything that he ever taught, but it's the largest collection that we have, and it's considered to be the oldest, tradition closest to the lifetime of the Buddha. Then there's the Mahayana tradition, uh, which came several hundred years after Gautama Buddha's death and kind of modified the teachings quite a bit. In the Mahayana tradition, there's kind of more worship, there's prayer, there's mantras, there's various things that Gautama Buddha didn't teach. And then in the third tradition, which is the Vajrayana tradition, it's came much later after Gautama Buddha's death, and they changed a lot of things. There's a lot of worship, a lot of prayer, a lot of mantras, a lot of different thoughts and beliefs and things like this. Dalai Lama is from the Vajrayana tradition. He's from a tradition that is not known to be the one that was close to the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, the Theravada tradition. As you move through these various traditions, they get further and further away from what Gautama Buddha actually taught. So in my mind, I feel that it gets further and further away from the ability to actually attain enlightenment. The Dalai Lama himself is essentially a monk. He's another monk. Some people kind of equate him to the Pope of Catholicism, but this isn't an accurate comparison because in the Buddhist teachings, there is no Pope, so to speak. There's no one organization that 
collects and distributes all the teachings out through all of these various traditions. These various traditions, while Theravada Buddhism is kind of hosted in Sri Lanka, Miramar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, southern Vietnam, it's really spread all throughout the world, but there's no centralized organization that's collecting all the teachings and distributing them. The teachings really live in the hearts and the minds of individual practitioners and teachers, and it's through the support of their students that those teachings continue to be maintained. And that's the same thing for Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition. So while the Dalai Lama is a really well-known monk and has a lot of visibility, he doesn't represent the Vajrayana tradition and he doesn't represent any of the other traditions either. He's just one particular monk. Now, since you asked what you should do, I suggest you pick one tradition and you stay within that tradition. If you want to make sure that you utterly confuse yourself and have a really hard time, if ever, attaining enlightenment, learn all the different traditions and then all the different offshoots of those traditions too. You're going to find it extremely difficult to make any progress because you're mixing and matching all of this stuff. So what I suggest you do is stick within the Theravada tradition because that's the tradition that is known to be the one that's closest to what Gautama Buddha actually taught and one that you will see results in attaining enlightenment. Because these other traditions and a lot of the offshoots, one of the big differences is they practice worship, they practice prayer, mantras, rites, rituals, things like this. And that's one of the primary things that Gautama Buddha said that doesn't lead to enlightenment. Just worshiping a statue, a hunk of metal, or a hunk of plastic, worshiping that statue is not going to change the condition of the mind. And Gautama Buddha taught this. So by staying in the Theravada tradition, you are rooting the mind and your understanding in the teachings that are known to be closest to the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, and that will lead to enlightenment. And that's what I share in the teachings. But let me share this as well. All of these traditions have been affected by impermanence. The fact that nothing stays the same. Everything's constantly changing. There's no steady fixed state. So in the Theravada tradition, there's communities of people that practice really, really, really close to what Gautama Buddha taught. And there's some people who have kind of steered away from it. And they practice rites and rituals and ceremonies. In the Mahayana tradition, there's people that are practicing all different types of things. There's not just one Mahayana tradition. There's lots of different groups within that. And the same thing with Vajrayana. So what you really want to look for is you want to look for a teacher who you feel has attained enlightenment. Because a teacher who's attained enlightenment is going to understand the teachings very, very, very deeply, and you will be able to see progress in your practice. If you're studying with somebody that hasn't attained enlightenment, then how could they ever guide you to enlightenment if they've never actually attained it themselves? So by studying with somebody who's in the Theravada tradition, who's attained enlightenment, you will have the best, most direct path to attaining that mental state yourself. And if you're with a teacher that has attained enlightenment and is delivering good quality teachings, you will notice for yourself that the condition of the mind is improving. 
the more you learn that person's teachings and the more that you practice them, you should see the results for yourself that the mind is becoming more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You should see your anger go down to frustration, irritation, annoyance, maybe a slight dislike. And then eventually that same situation that however long ago made you really angry, huh, I feel nothing anymore. And that's the way that your practice should evolve. But it's only going to be in certain communities within the Theravada tradition that you're going to be able to find those types of teachers. So it's really important that you stick within one tradition, that you find somebody that you feel has attained enlightenment, and you dedicate time and effort to learning and practicing those teachings. And then you should see the results of those teachings as your mind becomes more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. As a follow-up, David, would you be able to comment on this idea of the bodhisattva, the role of the bodhisattva? So something that comes up in especially Mahayana traditions. Does that have any relevance to us here? Before I answer that question, I'll share with you that I know very, very, very little, if anything, about all these other traditions because I never went into them because I got results from what I knew from Gautama Buddha's teachings. And uh, so I know very, very little about them. But what I do know is this Bodhisattva aspect that I understand, what I understand it to be, and anybody who studies Mahayana tradition, if I get this wrong, then just understand that I don't study those teachings. But what I understand the Bodhisattva is, is somebody who's taken a vow and has decided that they're not going to attain enlightenment in this life. And instead, they're going to help other people in this life to attain enlightenment and they're going to accept rebirth and be reborn and come back into the world in order to help more and more people to attain enlightenment. Okay, that's what I understand it to be. So they've somehow made this vow that I'm not going to get enlightenment, even though I probably could in this life, I'm not going to do it because that means if I get enlightenment that I'm not going to be reborn. So I'm not going to get enlightenment so that I can help as many people as I can now, and then I can get reborn and help more people, okay? My thoughts on this are, it's not what Gautama Buddha taught, number one. Anybody who is saying they're not going to get enlightenment, but help others to attain enlightenment, you wouldn't be able to help others to attain enlightenment if you haven't attained it yourself first. You need to first experience it and attain it before you could ever help other people. For example, if you've never driven a car before, how could you ever help anybody learn how to drive a car? Because you've never driven one yourself. You don't know what the pedals are. You don't know what the turn signals are. You don't know where the wipers are. How could you ever train anybody to drive a car if you've never driven a car yourself? So the idea that somebody is going to not get enlightenment but help a lot of other people through it's not possible. And then accepting rebirth, that's not possible either because there's no guarantee that they're going to be reborn back into the human realm. A person doesn't know necessarily where they're going to be reborn. So they could easily be reborn down into one of the lower realms like hell, afflicted spirits, or the animal realm. So accepting rebirth is completely opposite of what Gautama Buddha talked about 
and taught because remember he was looking at sickness aging and death and he wanted to solve these for people and the way that he solved this question of sickness aging and death is that by not being reborn then you won't experience sickness aging and death if there's no birth then there's no death so his whole goal in teaching and attaining enlightenment which you can observe for yourself that you've attained it is that by attaining enlightenment you will no longer be reborn and that solves the sickness aging and death so the bodhisattva to me if i'm understanding it correctly is not what Gautama Buddha taught. There's nowhere in his teachings that he taught people to take a vow and to accept rebirth and to help other people through. Because this is focusing attention on other people's practice. What he taught is learn the teachings for yourself, train your own mind, and attain liberation for yourself so that you can escape the cycle of rebirth through attaining enlightenment. If his goal and his whole teachings was about Bodhisattva, then he would have said, okay, I haven't attained enlightenment yet. Yeah, I, I haven't attained enlightenment yet, but I'm just going to teach you guys all the teachings that will lead to enlightenment. And I'm going to come back later and help you guys again. And I'm just going to keep helping you guys as much as I can. You guys go through. I'm just going to keep coming back and helping you. But that's not what he said. He said, Here's the teachings. This is what will lead to enlightenment. And you can see the truth for yourself. And when you attain this mental state, you will no longer be reborn. And he said the same thing, that he is not going to be reborn ever again. So that is the goal, is attaining enlightenment, not taking some vow and sticking around, trying to help people do something that you haven't done yourself. So that's my perspective on the Bodhisattva. And if I'm not understanding what a bodhisattva is, then that's okay because it's not part of the Theravada tradition and I haven't ever studied it. But uh, yeah, the goal is to learn and practice, observe the results for yourself as the mind improves and escape this whole cycle of rebirth. As much as we have enjoyment in our life at various times, who wants to stick around for countless iterations of crying and sadness and accidents, physical harm to the body, people yelling and being hostile, riots and racism and political problems and poverty and famine. And who wants to stick around for all that stuff? Um, sure, there's been some pleasant times in our life, but you know, if you ask me, I, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I'm not sticking around. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting one because when the mind lets go those things don't matter in a sense right yeah. like the suffering is like a impetus to let go in the mind yeah is it the case that in pursuing enlightenment especially in the very final stages the, the mind is saying oh I don't want this I'm going to decide against it or is it more a case of it simply doesn't see the value in pursuing uh, anything conditioned, sensual pleasures, and and experiencing all the other things that come from it. Because you know, if I'm not mistaken, even the Buddha did say there is gratification in pleasant experiences. It's just that they're impermanent, and they're, they're inevitably going to cause. If you attach to them, they're inevitably going to cause discontentedness. Yeah. So at some point, the mind's just going to say, "Well, 
what's the point? Right? Yeah, the pleasurable experiences, the Buddha talked about how human beings were basically held hostage almost to our sensual pleasures, right? There are certain foods and certain drinks that we want. And if we don't get those, we become discontent. Central pleasures, I think about sex. You know, if we don't get sex and the central pleasures, the mind becomes discontent. If we don't get that special fabric for our clothes that feels really good up against our body, which is a central pleasure, then we feel discontent. The smell, right? The central pleasures. If we smell something that's kind of like a sewage or horrible, ah, oh, oh, that smells so horrible, right? Like, if we see something, that's another sense, right? If we see something that we feel is horrible, ah, oh, the mind becomes so discontent. These are the doorways to discontentedness, the five senses in the mind. There's six doorways to discontentedness. So these sensual pleasures is what has human beings hooked. And we think that if we hold on to these central pleasures, that it will create happiness in the mind. But that happiness is impermanent. But we keep grasping and we keep trying to hold on to all these central pleasures. They make us happy for a period of time, but then when they're gone, the mind becomes discontent again. So what you have to do is you have to get to the point where the mind isn't craving these central pleasures and it's not hooked and holding on to these things. So once you become enlightened, you might eat a chocolate bar and you know it tastes good. But it's not like, oh, I got to have one tomorrow in the next day, in the next day. And if I don't get a chocolate bar, my mind's going to be angry and like I can't function without chocolate. Or you might uh, enjoy a certain type of clothing and you're like, okay, well, you know, I'll wear this clothing. But you can wear any clothing because you're past the whole central pleasure and you see danger in it. The Buddha described this. You see danger in attaching to anything. Anything that feels even remotely close to an attachment when you feel the mind pulling in that direction, you learn the danger in that because you see repeatedly over time that every time my mind gets attached, anytime it has a mental longing with a strong eagerness, I end up sad or I end up frustrated or I end up really excited. And then after the excitement's gone, then I feel sad again. Right. And you see your mind doing this up and down and up and down and up and down. And you start seeing so clearly that it's coming from craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. And the more you see that, you have no interest whatsoever to ever attach to anything or allow anyone to attach to you. Because, you know, if other people attach to you at some point, they're going to be discontent when you're gone. So if your child becomes very attached to you, which they are when they're first born and as they grow up, if they're really attached to you, when you leave, they're going to be lonely. They're going to be sad. They're going to be bored. They're going to be missing you. They're going to be grieving. So sometimes in the West, parents come home and they make their children so excited that the parent has come home. This is just precipitating attachment because now they're so excited that daddy comes home. But then when daddy leaves, now they're so sad and so lonely. So you start learning, why would I ever do this to my child? Why would I ever make them so excited when I come home? Because then when I leave, they're going to be so sad and so lonely and so bored. And you start seeing this true reality so clearly 
that you no longer are interested in having craving, desire, attachment to anything, any situation, anyone, and you also aren't interested in others having that craving, desire, attachment for you, and you find very skillful ways to ensure that people aren't attaching to you and making sure that they eliminate their attachments. And there's very skillful ways to do that. Like for me, I got to a point where I would get nauseous when I felt my mind pulling in a certain direction. I would literally get nauseous like I was gonna vomit. Or if I felt somebody attaching to me, I started feeling it. Like I felt the stress, I felt the control. And, and this is why, Max, you know that I had that idea that I was gonna go record the audiobook at that one studio. And yeah. I saw some things there that this person was trying to control me in the situation. And I was like, oh, I thought this might be a good studio to record the audiobook, but I'm not even going to go there. I, I don't think that that's a good idea. So I went to visit two other studios and I found one where the guy was just really laid back, but he was engaged. He has knowledge. He's interested, but he wasn't trying to control the situation. He was encouraging. He was supportive. He would like to collaborate on the project and he would like to work together as a partnership. But the other situation, even though I thought that's where I was going to go, I wasn't attached to it. I wasn't holding on to it. So when I saw that there was some craving on the other side, I was like, uh, uh, no, I don't, I'm not going to go there because that's not going to turn out good. Because if he's got craving to control the project and control me, then at some point he's going to be discontent because of it. And this isn't going to end well. And I also saw some attachment to money because he was like so adamant about the money as well and really wanting to make sure the, the money aspect of it all happened in the way that he wanted. And when I saw those things, and I, I saw some other things too, I don't want to go into too much detail. You guys don't know who he is. So that's why I can talk about it and use it as an example, right? It's not gossip, right? It's not slander because I'm not identifying who it is. I'm just using it as an example to help you guys illustrate that when you see somebody is attaching to you, you're going to want to remedy that situation. And in this situation, it was easy enough for me to go see other studios and find another sound engineer. Whereas if it's a son or my wife or a neighbor, then you have to be skillful in other ways. You can't just not see your son or not see your wife. And this is where everybody working together in a household, if everybody's working together to practice these teachings and practice non-attachment, then it's gonna be much more comfortable than if one person's practicing non-attachment and everybody else is attaching to you. It's not gonna feel comfortable at all. Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of people chew over in their minds again and again. And our whole society is built on you know, seeking pleasure, really, and trying to have up without down right yes uh to quote alan watts and um you know for a while before i met you i, I was thinking you know is it worth it surely it's got to be worth it otherwise people wouldn't do it and i think i was kind of barking up the wrong tree there really it's not it's not so much about whether it's worth it it's more that liberation is better <laughs> it, yeah. what's happening is people don't realize what they're doing right they still have that third poison the delusion the ignorance the unknowing of true reality 
people experience these ups and downs in life, we experience these cravings with cigarettes and cocaine and drugs and all these different things. And we don't realize because we're unknowing of true reality, we don't realize that we're causing our own discontent mind. And because we don't realize it in the unenlightened state, we keep doing it. And we do it more and more and more. And this is why a certain habit or addiction can become more and more and more intense because they're chasing the high, right? What made them high with initial craving, and I'm not just talking about substance abuse, I'm talking about you know, sex or being around a certain friend or a certain family member. If you feel really good being around that person, you know, this is how relationships get sabotaged. And we spend a little bit of time with this new boyfriend or girlfriend, and then it feels good. We want to spend more time and that feels good. We want to spend more and more time and that feels good. We want to spend more and more and more. And what we end up doing is we end up crushing the relationship because we're chasing that high and the mind doesn't realize what it's actually doing and what's causing the discontent feelings. And the more you chase it, the more you feel happy and the further you go down that path, your crash is much harder. So when you eventually crush the relationship, then the person becomes very lonely, very angry, very frustrated, or even if the relationship stays together and the partner say goes on a business trip, the person can be left in so much despair and so much loneliness because the person left. And this is the mind not knowing what it's doing. And that's why we're awakening the mind with the Buddhist teachings is the more you learn them and the more you see the way that the mind works, you can awaken the mind to true reality. You can train it through this wisdom of knowing how the mind works and that's why you can eliminate the discontent mind because we're causing it. But you just need to have the teachings and the wisdom of how to do that. And what you're talking about, Max, is once you become aware of the teachings, once you practice them, once you see the truth about how you're causing your own discontentness through craving, then, yeah, you get to the point where it's like, yeah, I don't even want to go there. It's just it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel comfortable. You start seeing this natural liberation, this natural enlightenment that feels so much better than anything you ever experienced before. So all this stuff that you're giving up by giving up craving, by giving up anger, by giving up ignorance or unknowing of true reality, by giving up cigarettes and alcohol or cocaine or heroin, uh, giving up ill will and hatred and frustration, giving up all of these things, you actually see the mind becoming more enlightened. And then it becomes like a snowball effect where you're more interested to walk towards the light and go in this direction because you know where that other path goes. It goes to the darkness and you've been there before and you know what that feels like and you're not interested in going back. And this is why sometimes when people hit rock bottom, it's the motivator that encourages them to go the other direction. But you got to stay focused on the goal and learning these teachings about what is the darkness and going towards the light. Because things like the five precepts, the Buddha is essentially telling you what the darkness is. Darkness is killing other living beings, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, 
taking substances that cause heedlessness. This is the darkness. And if you go down that path, it's going to have unwholesome results. And the same thing with the eightfold path, sharing things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. He's showing you the path. This is the path that you would like to walk. That's walking towards the light. And the more that you learn it and practice it, you will see the benefits for yourself and you'll not be interested in going down the darkness, but continuing to walk towards the light. Got it. Yeah. Thanks, David. We've got a couple of good questions on Facebook. So let's go there now. So question from Amina. Would it be fair to say that letting go of attachments is the same as becoming satisfied with having nothing and becoming aware that whatever we do have, we'll one day lose or that thing will alter as it is all impermanent. Yes, I agree with that statement, but let me just kind of qualify that a little bit. Sometimes when people feel like they're giving up everything, right? We're giving up cigarettes, we're giving up alcohol, we're gi some people are giving up meat, some people are giving up, if, by the time you get to the end of the path, giving up sex and sexual contact, you, you're giving up all these things. The Buddha talked about how this is a path of relinquishment that you're giving up things, you're relinquishing things. And then what I will add to that, everything that you're giving up pales in the comparison to what you're gaining. Because oftentimes what people focus on in this path is all the things you're giving up. But what I like to do is I also like to focus on what you're gaining. You're gaining focus, concentration, clarity of mind, you're gaining memorization, being able to have a really profound memory, which is going to help you in your personal and professional life. You're getting a peaceful mind, a calm mind, a serene mind, a content mind, permanent joy, right? And now that you've given up all of that drinking and killing and lying and stealing and sexual misconduct, you've given up all of that stuff. Now your mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy that no matter what happens in life, whether you have something or you don't, the mind is always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So while you need to look at all the things to give up, because the Buddha said this is a path of relinquishment, what I would encourage everyone to do is focus on the goal of what you're attaining because it's really easy to be kind of you know, Debbie Downer, so to speak, and think negatively, like, why do I got to give up all this stuff? But look at what you're headed towards. And then also on that same topic is what you choose to give up. And when you choose to give it up is your choice. There's no one forcing you to do it. There's nobody judging you for where you are in your practice, or at least from me. There's no expectations that I have of when somebody should give up something. So I'm not trying to push or force students to do things like give up sex or things like this. These are all personal choices. So my role, my job as a teacher is to lay out the path, share that path, teach that path, live that path so you can see it being lived as a real role model and example. And then you as a student get to choose how much of that you're going to learn and you get to choose when you're going to eliminate certain things from your life and your practice and you may not ever 
decide to do that. You may choose to only go so far with this practice. I'm open to teaching students no matter what they choose. I'm laying out the path. I'm teaching the path. I'm guiding you on the path. I'm living the path so you can see that in my practice. But where and when you choose to practice various aspects of the path is totally up to you. And that's what's beautiful about this practice is that you're not expected to snap the fingers and change everything right away because it's not possible. The mind doesn't work that way. It's gradual progress. And nobody should be judging you. Like for example, I share with you guys only a year and a half, two years ago, I stopped eating meat. Well, if I sit down with you and you eat meat, I'm completely fine with that. You don't, just because I don't eat meat doesn't mean you can't eat meat. I remember Max sitting down with me and apologizing for drinking a cup of coffee in front of me as if somehow that was going to offend me. And I was like, Max, you can drink a cup of coffee. Like, you know, I used to drink coffee. Why would I judge you for drinking coffee? I used to love coffee. I used to love alcohol too and a lot of other things. So this path, the teacher's role is to share the path, teach the path, guide you on the path, practice the path, but it's your choice of when you choose and how you choose to progress on the path. My role is just to encourage you and to support you and to help you wherever you decide to seek guidance and seek help along the path. So very good question, Amina. I think it opened up a lot of other discussion, but what you were saying there is 100% correct. Being satisfied with nothing but by being satisfied with nothing, when things do come into your life, you're peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because your peace, calm, serenity, and contented mind with joy isn't based on any condition. So I'll just give a little example. Like I never used to play Ruby's Cube much and I could never figure it out. But my son's had this thing around for a while. So yesterday I decided to figure out how to solve it. So for about six or eight hours yesterday, I sat down and tried to figure out how to solve it. And, and I figured it out with the help of YouTube. And today I figured it out even more. I got better and better memorizing how to actually do the, the turns and stuff. So I, haven't, I don't play with toys, but you know what? Okay, sure, I'll play with toys. It was fun. It was enjoyable. And now I know how to play the Rubik's Cube. But I'm not holding on to it like I've got to do it every single moment and I don't feel so excited and gleeful just because I, I solved it. It's like, oh, wow, okay, I got a new skill. Interesting. I can solve the Rubik's Cube now. But if somebody really had to get the Rubik's Cube and they were forcing it and forcing it and then they didn't get it and then they're angry because they didn't get it, right? Or if somebody broke their Rubik's Cube by accident or on purpose, they would be discontent because the mind wants to hold on to it so tightly. So by just being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, with nothing, when things do come into your life, it's like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. But you don't allow the mind to get so super excited because then you know that it's just going to lead to discontentness. It's like, oh, wow, interesting. And then the mind comes right back to the middle. So you have a number of questions about teaching non-attachment to children. So could you possibly comment on how we can teach non-attachment to teenage children and also younger children? Okay, so I think the best place to start with children is to start the same place I start with adults. 
is the three universal truths is start with impermanence. You got to teach them impermanence and uh, make sure they understand impermanence and show them in life. So teach it to them. Take, you know, five minutes to explain to them what impermanence is, that it's constant change. There's no steady fixed state. And then take them on a walk. Go outside because it's a universal truth. You're going to see it everywhere. So take them outside. Show them how there's green leaves in the tree and how there's old decaying leaves on the floor and show them how those green leaves used to be green, but now they're brown and that's impermanence. Show them how this tree or this flower used to be small and now it's big. Show them how they used to be small and now they're big. Show them how they used to eat baby food and now they eat real food. Show them how they were in second grade and now they're in third grade. Show them how they use the pencil and then they sharpen the pencil and the pencil goes away and it's impermanent. Show them how their hair grows. If they've had someone like grandma or grandpa die, show them how grandma and grandpa were here, but now they're gone because they're impermanent, right? So start with impermanence, right? That's how you start because they can't understand attachment if they don't understand impermanence. Then move into showing them that their mind experiences sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, all of these things because their mind has craving or desire or attachment and explain to them it's this mental longing, mental longing with a strong eagerness and usually do it at a time when their mind is discontent. So the time that I taught my son about attachment, like I introduced it to him when his mind was calm at some other time. But then when he walked in and he saw his Legos were broken in the middle of the floor and he, he started crying, that's when I said, see, this is from attachment. Your mind is attached. It has a mental longing and a strong eagerness for this Lego to be permanent. And when you saw it broken, that's when the mind became discontent. But let me ask you, are the Legos permanent, right? Because they've already understood impermanence over a couple of weeks. Are the Legos permanent? Is there anything permanent, right? So you have to ask them questions. You can't just dictate to them and you can't just push it into their mind. You have to give them a little bit of teaching. Children, usually just two or three minutes, depending on how old they are. And then you have to show it to them in the world, show them examples of it. And then you have to ask them questions. Ask them to go find something that's impermanent, right? Show me something that's impermanent. Can you find anything that's permanent? Go look, show me something and let them look and be like a little scavenger hunt. Children love games. If you turn it into a game, then they'll play along and it'll be fun, it'll be interesting. So first show them impermanence, show them this mental longing with a strong eagerness, explain to them what that is. And then when their mind is discontent, that's the ideal time to point it out to them so they can see how they're causing it themselves. And then when they become peaceful again and they've stopped the crying or, or anger or whatever it is, say, see, you eliminated your attachment. You let it go. You were crying about the Legos, but now you're watching TV for the last 20 minutes and you see how calm your mind is now? You probably forgot all about the Legos, right? 
And they're like, yeah, you're right. So you don't have to sit down and give them this real deep theory talk about the Four Noble Truths and things like this. You can actually just show it to them in real life and say, aha, look. So my lessons with my son, when I first started out, I think he was about five and a half or, or six years old. And my lessons with him would be like two minutes long, maybe three to five minutes long at the most. And then we would be off to something else. Right. And then sometimes like we would be driving home and he would be talking about all the things he's going to do when he gets home. And I'm like, oh, Bailan, that's in the future. Daddy's talking to you right now. I want to know what are you thinking right now? Like your mind's too far in the future. Right. So you just have to remind them about these teachings over and over these little three to five minute lessons here and there and showing it to them in the real world so they can apply the teachings directly in the real world. Okay, and also uh, Manal was asking specifically about teenage children. Would you have any different advice for teenagers? For teenagers, I think once they get to like 12, 13, 14, I think they can read this book, you know? I think that they could jump into this book and with help from mom and dad who's already reading and learning this book, the whole family could learn this together. There's a children's book that I'm working on that will be out at some point, but a teenage child should be able to learn this starting at about age 12. And if mom and dad are already familiar with it, they would be able to help them. I specifically used very basic English in order to ensure that I was capturing and able to teach the widest audience possible. And the videos and podcasts and quizzes also use all the same basic English because my interest isn't to try to sound so big or so important. My interest is to have as many people learn and practice and get the results as possible. So even when I'm teaching these classes, you see I use very basic, very simple English. And luckily, that's pretty much all I know anyway. <laughs> so I feel that teenage children could learn from these same resources that I share with adults. Got it. I have a question, David. So given that we're aiming to be mindful in every moment, live in the present moment, what role can routine play in this? How much value do you place in routine? Routine can be helpful when you're first getting started, but don't allow the mind to get attached to it. Here's what I mean by that. Early on, I used to have a lot of trouble sleeping to the point where I actually used to take sleeping medication because I wasn't aware of these teachings back then. It was 24 years ago when I started doing all that stuff. I used to take sleeping medication because I had such a hard time sleeping and I had to take sleeping medication for essentially 24 years until I learned these teachings and don't need it anymore. But what I observed at those times is that because I lacked structure in my life, my mind was untrained and I lack structure. Remember, the unenlightened mind is looking to attach. It's looking for permanence. So the unenlightened mind typically doesn't like unstructured things. It likes a certain routine or a certain schedule. So what I noticed when I was working on sleep is that when I had a certain routine of coming upstairs, relaxing a little bit, taking a shower, doing meditation and falling asleep, the mind kind of gets hooked on that routine 
and it fell asleep easier and easier and easier because it was looking for that routine. This is one of the reasons why children typically fall asleep really easily is because there's a certain routine that the parents set up for them. But then as we get older, we get away from that routine and that's one of the reasons we have trouble sleeping. So if you put yourself back into a child's shoes and you create a routine for yourself, it will help you to sleep. But the problem with that is as you go on over the years, if you get so attached to that and then you don't do that routine, the mind has trouble sleeping. And what you're going to notice is that as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, you're going to need less and less sleep. You won't need as much sleep. So if you're having trouble sleeping and you're not getting good quality sleep, implement something like a routine in order to do the same things for the last 30 minutes of the day that induces the mind and puts it to sleep because it does these same things you know, every day for 30 minutes. But then don't get so attached to it over six months or a year or two years after the mind is, gets really well rested, then maybe start switching it up a little bit because you need to observe impermanence, right? This whole thing about insomnia, what I realized is there's no such thing as insomnia. I mean, there is. There's definitely people who don't sleep for multiple days, right? But that's just the mind being untrained. But we would say if we're used to falling asleep every night at 10 o'clock and then we do that for six months or a year, we religiously fall asleep at 10 o'clock every night. If we're awake at 11 or 12, we think we have insomnia. But in reality, sleep schedule is impermanent. There's no way that you can fall asleep at the exact same time every single day for your entire life. So as you practice these teachings more and more, if you're used to falling asleep at the same time every day, what you'll notice is that your sleep schedule will shrink more and more and more because you won't need as much sleep. Most people who are practicing these teachings really deeply sleep anywhere from about four to six hours. You know, eight hours is kind of like a lot of sleep. Some people even sleep just one or two hours that are enlightened. And some people don't even, you know, sleep for an entire night or two in the enlightened mind, but they're so aware of their mind, have so much awareness of mind that they're not frustrated, they're not grumpy, they're not sad, they're not lonely, they're not bored because their mind is enlightened and it's functioning optimally, it doesn't need sleep. So routines are helpful to kind of get things established and get things moving in the right direction, but then you have to recognize that they need to be impermanent because you can't hold on to your routine. If I had to fall asleep at the same time every single night and I was rushing my family to get home in order for me to fall asleep at the same time every night, that's gonna cause unwholesome results because now I'm rushing and I'm forcing my family to do things and my language is becoming harsh and hostile just because I'm trying to hurry up and get home to fall asleep, for example. So it's good to get started routines, but don't get attached to them and know that they're gonna change over time. I noticed in the book as well, it says that as the mind becomes more enlightened, you might notice you dream less. So my question then is, what are dreams? What is the role of dreams? And is there ever something useful we can draw from dreams? 
I wrote that into the book because what I noticed is for many, many years prior to where I am now, I stopped dreaming. Uh, I used to dream a lot in my earlier years and then just all the dreams stopped. And what I noticed is during that time, the mind came more into the present moment. And when I was dreaming, I was either dreaming about the past or I was dreaming about the future. And when all the dreams stopped for many, many years, I noticed that the mind came more into the present moment. And when I talked with other people, they had similar experiences as well. Now, there are some doctors and medical people that tell you that you have to dream in order to get good quality sleep, which I disagree with. So dreaming is not required. What you'll notice is the less you dream or if you don't dream at all, the mind's coming more likely into the present moment. But you may end up having dreams at different times. It's not really an indicator that things are going bad or going good. But if you notice that you don't have dreams anymore, don't hold on to them and don't think that they're important, that it's probably just a sign of your mind coming into the present moment. And if you do dream, don't think that that's good or that's bad because those aren't permanent. And definitely don't try to figure out your dreams. A lot of people try to do dream interpretation and figuring out what does this mean? Am I going to be rich? Am I getting a new boyfriend? Am I supposed to get a new job? Should I do this or should I do that? And they're basing it all off of a dream. Well, once you wake up, if you've dreamed and you've had a dream, whether it was a pleasant dream or a horrible dream, once you wake up, the dream's in the past. Just let it go. Just let it go. You're in the present moment. So don't hold on to these dreams and try to interpret what they are and try to figure out what the future is all about based on this dream because it's only going to steer you in the wrong direction. The goal is to bring your mind into the present moment and make good, wholesome decisions in the present moment. Don't be dwelling on the future and trying to figure out the future. Got it. Thanks for that, David. We have... No more questions at the moment. Okay, so maybe we should do some meditation. Looks like we've got about 30 minutes to get into some meditation. Sounds good. All right, so now that we've filled up our minds with all of these questions and all these answers, let's meditate and let it all go. You know, if we were not online like this, live, uh, streaming, if we were in a retreat setting or you were in a class with me, I would do meditation right away at the beginning of the class session in order to prepare the mind for the discussion. But because we're live streaming and things like this, usually the first few minutes people are just showing up. And if we are all in meditation, you know, those people that are coming in, they're not going to know what we're doing and, and what we've been learning. So I usually talk first during these online sessions and then meditate afterwards. But don't be surprised if you come learn with me in person, either through a retreat or a class or something like that, where we actually do meditation first and then we talk. And this actually prepares the mind for the learning much better. Okay, so let's do breathing mindfulness meditation. I would like you to go ahead and take a seat either in a chair or on the floor and get your lower body comfortable. If you're sitting on the floor, just cross your legs lightly, not real tight, just kind of a little bit loose to allow the circulation to flow, right? If you put them in real tight, 
your legs will have a tendency to go to sleep, cause pain, and then you won't be able to train the mind because all you'll experience is pain. So just really nice and loose. If you're sitting in a chair, feel free to cross your legs, feet flat on the floor, or put your legs straight with your feet flat on the floor, up to you. Just make the lower body comfortable. It's like it doesn't even exist, right? Just nice and comfortable, but not luxurious. Your upper body should be in the middle, not slouched and not real rigid, but using your muscles, engage the muscles to keep the body erect in the middle. This will help keep the mind attentive during the meditation session. If you slouch or you lean back, the mind's gonna have a tendency to kind of turn off and be lazy and hard for you to actively train it. So by keeping your muscles engaged with your upper body in the middle, it allows you to maintain your attentiveness and your alertness of the mind so you can actively train it during the meditation session because that's what meditation is. It's an active, independent, purposeful training session where you're either eliminating certain things from the mind or cultivating certain things from the mind. When you walk the dog, you're walking the dog. You're not meditating. Or you go for a jog, you're jogging. You're not meditating. Active, independent, purposeful training session. That's what we're gonna do. So with your lower body comfortable and your upper body in the middle, supported by your muscles, take your hands and place your right hand over your left with your thumbs together and put those in your lap. Or if that's not comfortable, find another position. Put your palms on your lap or palms on your knees, whatever feels comfortable, where by the time you get your body set up, the lower body, upper body, and hands and arms, it's like they don't even matter. They, they just don't even exist, okay? We're just resting, getting our body comfortable so that it doesn't even exist because we wanna access the mind. Now focus the mind on the breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Take some nice, steady, natural breaths where you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. You're focusing the mind on the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of the air coming over the skin as the air enters into the nose. So just breathe in through the nose and out through the nose, focusing the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. That's why we're training the mind to focus there, because we're training the mind to come into the present moment. The breath is the present moment. So take nice, natural breaths. You don't want to force the breath. You don't want to control it. You just want it to be a nice, natural, steady breath. If you notice the breath is too fast or too rapid, it's probably because the mind is so active. Just slow the mind down so it slows the breath down. If you're noticing it's too long, then maybe the mind's not attentive enough. Just make the mind a little bit more attentive so then the breath will naturally become just nice, steady, and natural breath. 
What you're doing now is you're setting up mindfulness in front of you. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. You're becoming aware of the mind by focusing it on the breath. I'm going to do some chanting just to kind of ease us into meditation. If you know these chants, you're welcome to do them. Join along. And then after the chants, I will come back and provide some more guidance. on the breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Focus the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. Breathing in and out. As you sit in meditation, focused on the breath, 
as thoughts of the past come into the mind, just let them go. Cut them off. Just bring the mind to the breath. Don't allow the past to invade your thoughts. At whatever point you notice, the mind goes to the past. Just cut it off. Let it go. If the mind goes to the future, don't allow the mind to wander around in the future. It can't be peaceful there. It can't be calm. It can't be serene. It can't be content with joy. You need to cut off those thoughts. Let them go. Bring the mind to the present moment. only in the present moment that the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If the mind has any thoughts or ideas or perceptions, no matter what they are, good, bad, indifferent, don't judge them Don't label them. Don't allow them to come into the mind. At whatever point you notice thoughts, ideas, or perceptions, just cut them off. Let them go. Bring the mind to the breath. The mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the present moment. I'm going to leave you on your own to just sit here and cut your thoughts, let them go, and focus only on the breath, the present moment. There's nowhere to go, there's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath, the present moment.
questions about how we did meditation or anything that came up as you were meditating if you have questions about welcome to ask those a few times david i've had some quite deep meditations in the lying position more so than sitting and uh, a couple of times i felt like almost like i'm on the verge of sleep i suppose i just want to check that i'm not really just falling asleep there or at risk of falling asleep is this maybe suggesting something about my practice outside of those situations that maybe the mind is too restless? Because I, I still have good meditation seated, but it seems that sometimes when I'm lying down, extra relaxation really helps me to settle in. If that's what you're noticing, then that's great. You know, you should see that as wisdom that perhaps that's a good position for you to meditate in, however frequently you decide to do that. The mind can become very, very relaxed during meditation and feel like you're on the verge of sleep. And this can be a jhana that sometimes 
you get in really deep meditative, almost like a trance, you know, like really, really deep. But there's if there's still awareness there and you're not kind of like, you know, nodding, you know, off to, to sleep. If you're nodding off to sleep and you're losing muscle strength, then that's sleep. And you should probably just stop meditating and sleep or switch to another position like walking or standing or something like that. But barring that you're actually literally falling asleep and dozing off, it could be that your mind is either moving into one of the jhanas or has already attained one of the jhanas that you're getting that deep meditative quality of of meditation, that deep quality of training the mind of meditation. So it's not a bad thing. Uh, It can be a good thing. Again, if you're not falling asleep, it can be a really good thing. I've heard it described before as... Uh, one um, teacher I came across once described it as this edge of the pillow feeling and I think what he meant by that was like the feeling of when you are actually falling asleep I think most people can relate to there's a certain moment when you're falling asleep when it's like the mind just switches gears and it becomes Mm -hmm. very relaxed but also drowsy Mm -hmm. and then sometimes in meditation it's like that feeling minus the drowsiness Mm-hmm. It's almost like this. It's yeah. like that sensation that you get when you're falling asleep, just without the drowsiness. Yeah, that's deep meditation. That's where you would like to get to, where you're not drowsy, you're not dozing off, but you're just so deep in meditation. The mind is so calm, so focused on the present moment, on the breath, that it almost feels like sleep. One thing that I was going to share, because it reminded me when I thought came to my mind, is that. If you're meditating and you're, you're seeing things, like you're having visualizations, like different colors or lights or different things like this, oftentimes people will sometimes comment that they experience that during meditation. You can treat that just like I described a dream, that don't try to interpret it, don't try to figure out what it is, don't think that something is imminent or anything like this. Sometimes people try to put a lot of significance in if they saw pink, what does that mean? If they saw white, what does that mean? If they saw a bright light, does that mean they're getting close to enlightenment and things like this? This is just the mind producing all the various visualizations that it does. You need to remain unattached to these visualizations as well and not try to put significance or importance into these things. Just let them go. When you're observing them in meditation, Don't attach to them. Don't feel like, wow, look at this. Oh, it's a beautiful light. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow, look at that. Because the mind's going to want to follow that and get attached to the light. Just keep the mind focused on the breath. Even if the eyes are aware that there's various colors or patterns or things like this, just stay focused on the breath and train the mind to focus only on the breath, staying in the present moment. And don't try to interpret what those different colors and visualizations are. You spoke a moment ago about states of jhana, David, and I noticed that in the book Developing a Life Practice, you've deliberately been uh, not too specific about the different stages of jhana. I was wondering if you could comment on what someone should look for in jhana states, meditation states, and why perhaps we shouldn't delve too deeply into various kinds, or maybe we should. Yeah, I don't suggest people dive into understanding the jhanas because the jhanas are impermanent, they're temporary. And the more time you spend 
trying to understand all the different jhanas, which jhana you're in, which jhana you're headed to, which jhana you would like to attain, all of these things, that means it's taking you away from the ultimate goal, which is the permanent state of enlightenment, of arahant. Focus on the ten fetters, you know, the, which is going to lead you to enlightenment, as well as, you know, all the other stuff, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all of that stuff. By putting a lot of attention and focus on the jhanas, you're taking your mind in a different direction, in my view, even though it's on the path, it's taking the mind away from the ultimate goal, which is to be an arahant and attain complete liberation and enlightenment. So any amount of time we spend talking about the jhanas, it's taken away from talking about the real goal, which is enlightenment and liberation. I don't share much about the jhanas because I'm not interested in people spending a lot of time learning that and staying focused on it. But one thing that you will notice, oh, and another reason why I don't spend much time talking about it is because I like it to be a little bit unknown so that as you're sharing and commenting various things that you're experiencing, I will know that you're going towards a jhana or in a jhana because then there's a difference in guidance that I give you. And if I kind of pre-plan and tell you everything to, that you're going to experience in a jhana, then it's not like real feedback when you start telling me different things that you're experiencing. So I don't share the jhana for those reasons. And I also don't share it because if you know too much about it, you might start craving it. Some people even crave enlightenment. They have a mental longing and a strong eagerness for enlightenment. And as long as you have that, you're not going to attain it. So you have to even eliminate the craving for enlightenment. Pursue it as a goal, an objective, or an interest. So if you know too much about the jhanas, you might start craving them. Even Gautama Buddha was very basic in his description about the jhanas. But one thing that you'll notice in the very first jhana is, and I'll share this with you because it's very important, is... When you go from unknowing of anything about Gautama Buddha's teachings in the unenlightened mind and you're angry, you're frustrated, you're irritated, you're bored, you're lonely, you're sad, guilt, shame, all this stuff, and you learn the Four Noble Truths, you practice those, and you learn the Eightfold Path and the Five Precepts and these things, and you practice those very closely, and you do it for a long period of time with meditation and everything else, the mind's going to become more and more trained. And as it does the first jhana, you're going to feel bliss, just complete bliss, utter bliss. It's going to feel like the most intense high that you've ever experienced. You know, I've, I've experienced marijuana, crack cocaine, alcohol, LSD, and that first breakthrough where you start getting a glimpse of that first jhana, it feels like utter bliss. Like it's the most biggest, highest natural high you've ever had. And once it happens, it's usually like a light bulb. It's like the old timey light bulbs where it kind of flickers. You might experience it for two or three seconds and then it goes away because the mind's like, oh, what was that? Oh, wow. Oh. And then it's gone. And then the mind starts craving it. And that's why it's gone because the mind starts craving it. When there's craving, even for that feeling, then it's going to diminish and the lights, it's going to go out. So when you feel that utter bliss hit you, just remain unaffected by it. Like you're standing in the middle of the rain naked and it's raining down hail on you and you're just unaffected by it. So when you feel that bliss, just remain completely unaffected by it.
that's what you'll see with the first jhana when you start breaking through the first jhana. The reason why I share even this much with you is because a lot of times when people reach that first jhana, they think they're already enlightened. They feel that utter bliss going from a completely unenlightened mind and just practicing these teachings really closely to this overwhelming bliss. And people will oftentimes feel, oh my God, that was the enlightenment. Especially if they think that enlightenment is like a light switch. Because people think and believe that Gautama Buddha sat under a tree and he instantly became enlightened, which isn't true. But some people believe that. He never taught that. He never said that. But some people believe it. If you believe that and you feel that bliss hit you, people are going to immediately think they're enlightened. And they think that, okay, that's it. I'm done. And they kind of stop. And then they, they don't understand what enlightenment is, that it is the elimination of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, all of this. But they have that experience of the bliss. They assume they're enlightened but they still go around speaking hostile. They're still angry. They're still frustrated. Because when you hit these first four jhanas, you're practicing pretty well, but there's still ill will. There's still ego. There's still a lot of things. And this is my thoughts on how these other traditions got started, going back to one of the first questions we had about the Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and Vajrayana Buddhism is as people were learning Gautama Buddha's teachings after his death and more and more people hundreds of years after him were hitting these jhanas and hitting even the first or second stage of enlightenment by practicing some amount of his teachings, the ego was still in place. And it's like, oh, I'm enlightened now. The Buddha got this all wrong. It's not five realms. It's 32 realms. He didn't teach the realms correctly. Or it's not five realms, like the Buddha said. It's eight realms, or it's nine realms. Or it's not four jhanas, like the Buddha taught. There's actually eight jhanas, right? And all these teachings started changing because people started breaking through to these various jhanas and even the first or second stage of enlightenment, but the ego is still in place. So I share this with you about the first jhana so that when you hit that bliss and you feel it, don't get attached to it. Just remain unaffected by it and just continue to focus on the breath and don't think that you're enlightened. You're not there. You're not even close. The jhanas are an indication that things are starting to kind of come together. They're starting to gel. You've, you've learned the Four Noble Truths, practicing that well. You learn the Eightfold Path, you're practicing that well. You know the five precepts, you're practicing those pretty closely. You've got a really good meditation practice going. And here's four jhanas that kind of give you the indication that things are headed in the right direction. Things are starting to gel. That's essentially what the jhanas are. You still need to go through the four stages of enlightenment, which are quite challenging. So when you feel that bliss, just remain unaffected by it. Thank you, David. We have a question from Manal. She asks, can you ask for or pray for insights during meditation? I would never say you can't do something because I am not interested in controlling you and what you do in your practice. So I would never say you can't do this or don't do this. But what I will share is that I don't feel it will be helpful because the goal of meditation is to actively train the mind 
actively train the mind through a dedicated, purposeful training session. And you're training the mind to either eliminate certain things or cultivate. You're eliminating craving with breathing mindfulness meditation and you're cultivating loving kindness with loving kindness meditation. During meditation, if you're praying or you're having thoughts and and those kind of things, then the mind's not doing an active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to eliminate things from the mind or cultivate certain things in the mind. If you're going to pray, I would suggest praying before meditation or after meditation. So that's what I would suggest. But how you actually practice is up to you. I personally do a prayer before I meditate and I feel that that's more important than afterwards. So I put it in a more prominent place, a higher priority in my practice. So I pray first and then I meditate. And of course there's chanting in there too. So if you really want to know, it's, it's in the book, but I start with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I pray our Father who art in heaven. I then chant to ease the mind in the meditation. And then I meditate and then I chant at the end. But I don't teach the prayer because it's not required as part of learning and practicing the teachings to attain enlightenment. I teach you the things that are just exactly what you need in order to attain enlightenment. So if you were going to pray, I would say do it before or after your meditation or at some other time, not connected to your meditation, but it's up to you. Okay. It appears we have no more questions at this time. Okay. Well, I will end our session in the same place that Max started it with gratitude and appreciation that you've decided to learn and practice these teachings, that you find it important enough that you attend these sessions or you watch the video or you listen to the podcast, that you're studying with the book, that you're asking questions. The more active that you are in learning and practicing these teachings, the more results that you're going to get. I feel enormous appreciation and gratitude the more and more people that are gathering in order to learn and practice these teachings because I know it's only going to help you, those close to you, and all of humanity the more and more that you learn and practice these teachings. So I wish you well on this path. Very pleased that you've chosen to learn with me and very pleased to see that you've decided to dedicate at least this time, to learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. And I hope that you decide to dedicate even more time beyond just our session here today. So thank you so much. I will see you on Sunday at 9 o'clock, where we're going to be learning about the ego. The chapter that we're going to be in at that point is chapter 17, which is dissolving the ego. The ego serves no purpose. We're going to talk about what the ego is and talk about how to dissolve it. This is one of the most challenging aspects I feel of the path. So that's why I dedicated an entire chapter to it. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it. So I wish you well in your day. May you be well. May you be safe. May you be peaceful. May you be free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. Take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. 
There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.